Well, as many of you know, I moved to the Middle East when I was about three years old with my family, of course. And we settled in a little neighborhood on a hilltop outside Jerusalem called Mevaseret Zion, which means Herald of Zion. Uh, and at the time, there was an Iraqi dictator, some of us might remember, by the name of Saddam Hussein. And he was launching these Russian-made ballistic missiles against Israel, also called Scud missiles. And this was during the first Gulf War. And uh, what felt like uh, an interminable season, my family would wake up at night to sirens, and we would run to the bomb shelter that every home had to have, and we put on our gas masks, and we would wait together for the darkness of that night to end. So on the screen behind me, you can see that's me in the, in the car seat with the little bag gas mask, and my two sisters and my mom, and there in the way back, you can see a special uh, gas crib in which you would put, my newborn sister was put, and she could be comforted with these kind of creepy arms that you'd reach in and touch her with. But at the time, my understanding of Saddam's motives was pretty simple. I would hear the sirens, and I'd, I'd get up out of my bed, and I was trained to push my car seat in front of me, and I'd come speeding around the corner and get into the, the, the bomb shelter, and I'd sit there. And I, I understood to an extent what was happening, namely that Saddam was a ruler of a country, that, that he had things that he wanted, he had purposes, and he was using the scary sirens and the missiles and whatever else so that he could get those things, so that he could fulfill his purposes. Now, not too long after this war, uh, Israel celebrated their annual holiday of Purim, which is a spring holiday, and it celebrates or commemorates the defeat of Haman's plot to massacre the Jews that we read about in the book of Esther. And there are religious aspects to this holiday, but by and large, it plays out like Halloween might be here, where you have lots of sweet things to eat, and the kids all dress up in their favorite costumes. And so for whatever reason, when Purim came about, I decided I really wanted to be the king in the story of Esther. I wanted to be King Achashverosh. And I remember feeling quite regal as, as I walked around in this costume that my mother made for me. Uh, and I, I'd stride up and down our front driveway, waving my cardboard scepter, and I vividly remember thinking, what would it like to truly be a king? Now, given my limited understanding of, of tyrants and dictators like Saddam, whose actions were still imprinted on my mind, I remember thinking, well, maybe, um, maybe I need armies, and I need missiles, and I need great force and fear and intimidation to make people listen to me, to make them obey my rules and do what I wanted them to do. But thankfully, as I grew and as I was raised in the faith of my mother and father and as I disciplined myself in God's word, I, I learned to appreciate the ruling style of a different kind of king, a king that we see described in the pages of scripture, 
you know, one who has legions of angels at his command, and who can, with just a word or a look or a thought, bend all to his indomitable will, but who chooses instead, in his infinite patience and power and love and wisdom and justice and mercy, chooses to rule in a different way. Not through force, violence, oppression, and intimidation, but through the people that he created. If you turn in your Bibles with me, or you can follow along on the screen to to Psalm 8, here the, the psalmist, he praises God for his creation. And he says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all the the magnificence of your creation, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned them with glory and honor. And then what does he say? You have made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. God, in his kingly rule, saw fit to invite us to be rulers over everything he'd made, to give us the privilege of being a part of his kingly rule. Now, I think, think back with me to Genesis 1.27, where we read that God created man and woman in his own image. This is a truth that's enforced again a few chapters later in Genesis 9.6 in the prohibition of murder. We are made in God's image. And this seems to have something to do, at least in part, with our role of ruling over God's creation. I don't know if you guys remember the imagery out of Iraq in the early 2000s, 2003, Baghdad especially. But Saddam Hussein, he had built these statues of himself, and they were pretty much everywhere. Giant statues. And they're all similar in design. It's, it's always him standing there authoritatively with his hand outstretched as though proclaiming an edict, illustrating that the people were under him. There was little doubt, as you, I mean, you can look on, on the internet, and there's just statue after statue, there's little doubt what they were meant to convey. They, they were there to be reminders of, representations of his power, his presence, and his authority over all the people. But as soon as he fell from power, do we remember what happened, those of you who were born at that point? Okay, do you remember what happened? The first thing, one of the first things his people did was tear those images down. To them, these statues were representations of his authority and they had to go because his authority and his power was no more. Now, again, while there are many ways that we can think about what does it mean to be made in God's image, one way, I believe, is to understand that God made us in a much realer sense than Saddam's statues to represent him, to be images, to be representatives of his authority, doing so much more than just standing there with our hand outstretched as a statue, but actually working on his behalf as stewards, as rulers over his creation. 
These are the words of Genesis 1.28, where God, just after he had uh, proclaimed man and woman, declared them as made in his image, he then blesses them, and he commands them to fill the earth and subdue it, and to rule over every living thing. Now, if you've ever wondered how much the king of the universe values man whom he created, this should give you a clue. That he would make this good and perfect and wonderful creation and then see fit, desire even, to place us in authority over it, to make us a part, a significant part of his kingship. Put us in a position of stewardship over all he has made and invite us to serve him as co-regents over the work of his hands. This to me speaks love and value and is where we derive much of our purpose. But we know the Bible story just as we know the condition of our own hearts. And even though we were enjoying every good thing in close proximity and relationship with God, it only took us until Genesis chapter 3 to reject his kingly rule. And in that rejection, we forfeited every good thing. His rule never ended. Okay? His rule went on. His kingship, his sovereignty over all that he had made never came to an end. But the people he'd invited to rule with him, to be his representatives, representatives of his kingly rule on earth, in their rebellion, they created a state of dissonance a disconnect and a conflict between God's kingly rule and the world. One that has led to the state we are in now. But what's the good news? The good news is that the omniscient God was not surprised by this. His purposes weren't thwarted. Instead, he decided to sovereignly move through redemptive history to restore his kingly rule in the world through his people. He moved through time and space. As we continue to read scripture, he decided to um, set apart for himself a people through Abraham, right? And he revealed them, himself to them in power and in might uh, through the story of the Exodus. As we read through that, we see over and over again as he led them out of slavery, as he brought them out of Egypt, he showed his sovereign kingship to them. And then he gathered them at the foot of Mount Sinai and he invited them to be a part of his rule once again. In Exodus 19, 5 through 6, he says, If you obey me, if you keep my covenant, though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be a part of my kingly rule on this earth. You will be standard bearers of my kingdom. This is how I want to rule. And he set up guidelines for them. He set up parameters, expectations of how to bear his standard. Responsibilities for members of his rule. And he set up his dwelling place among them, right? In the form of the tabernacle and the temple. And in his proximity and their obedience... There was to be every good thing. 
They were promised every good thing. But <clears throat> just as consistently as God proved his faithfulness and proved his kingship, God's people rejected his rule. Over and over again, they played the harlot. They sought the rulership of other gods, compromising their role in God's kingdom. And so what did God do at that point? Well, he raised up kings to guide them, but these kings, even though they could not thwart God's purposes, they consistently failed. They led God's people into this idolatrous spiral until at one point the cup of their rebellion was so full that God's presence withdrew from his people. The symbolic dwelling place of God among them was destroyed. They were cast into exile in a period of darkness reigned, leading many to believe that sin had had the final say. You know, the more we appreciate, it was a very brief overview, but the more we appreciate and understand the history of our repeated rejection of him, the more beautiful and the more poignant, I think, becomes God's redemptive plan. Because we know that in his faithful loving kindness toward us, he did not give up on mankind. He didn't throw the world out, but he kept making a way for his kingly rule on earth. Through the, through the prophet Isaiah, he promised that there would come from the line of Jesse one who would bring with finality the kingly rule of God through his people on earth once again which is what we spoke about last week. This man would succeed where Adam failed. This man would be faithful where God's people were not faithful. This man would be a different kind of king from those who had come before him. This man was Jesus, God with us. And when he finally came, it was like a light piercing through that darkness. And he proclaimed, this is it, people. The kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God's rule is bursting forth into the world through me. So repent, believe the gospel. Repent and enter once again and finally into God's kingly rule through me. Now, Jesus didn't come 2,000 some years ago, to establish a mighty physical kingdom that would cover the face of the earth. Not yet. But to establish God's saving kingship, his saving rule over the hearts and lives of anyone who would freely receive him. He didn't come to destroy Rome like the Jews at the time were hoping so much to see, but to destroy the authority of Satan, the adversary, over the hearts of his people. To destroy the power of sin and the finality of death. To bring peace where there was conflict between us and God. And to gather onto himself a people from all nations to be a part of his kingdom. To become citizens of his kingdom. And... As we spoke about last week, in so doing, Jesus ushered in a new age. A now and not yet kingdom where God would rule over the nations through Christ. 
through a community of people who in Christ would be progressively transformed, increasingly reflecting his ruling image, the image of him who is the image of God. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformed into representatives of the king on this earth. A king who would rule over the hearts of all those who respond to his message. Now, this is the new reality. Uh, this is the one, this is the reality that you and I live in today. A reality, number one, in which the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. But also, a reality in which the kingdom of God is, in a sense, growing, it's increasing in lives surrendered to God, obedient to his rule. It's a progressive sanctification, if you will, of Christ's people, where we grow more and more like Christ, who is reigning over our hearts now, and we see more and more fruit of his reign. And then finally, same reality, in which the kingdom of God, one day, on the last day, will be introduced universally. Then, that mighty kingdom will cover all of creation. Then we will be perfectly sanctified. And all of Christ's enemies will be placed under his feet, Scripture says. And then he will turn the kingdom over to the Father. And that's a whole study for another time. But this is our new reality in Jesus. All these things true at once. A reality of thankfulness for what took place. Thankfulness for what is taking place. And thankful expectation for what will take place. Thankfulness that the rule of God has come in the person of Jesus. Thankfulness that we get to be his standard bearers, that we get to reign in life through him. Thankfulness for the responsibilities and the role that now each one of us has in him. Thankfulness that as Christ was crowned king, victorious over death, we get to enjoy today the benefits of that victory. And also, thankfulness for the evidence of the kingdom that we've received. Evidence that's in the, every life of every person who is in Christ. And that is the Holy Spirit. You see, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, his disciples still not quite understanding what was going to happen, still not quite figuring out uh, what Jesus was telling them. They asked him in Acts 1.6, is now the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time when you're going to free us from our enemies and, and establish us as a mighty nation? They had a vision for the final kingdom to come. But Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the time. But here's what you can know. You will receive with power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so sure enough, after the account of the Pentecost, Peter tells his listeners in Acts 2 that the same Spirit that had been with Jesus 
was poured out on all flesh. In the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and as a public confirmation that the last days, the days of the now and not yet that are leading to the last day, had arrived. The Holy Spirit is a pledge. He's the guarantee. He's the counselor. He's the helper. He's God's Spirit. And it's through His work and presence in the life of every believer that the kingly rule of God goes on. According to 1 John uh, 4, verse 13, those who live in Christ, who have submitted to his lordship over their lives, receive, not someday, but right now, the great benefit of the Spirit's indwelling as the confirmation of the new life and the new kingly rule over our hearts. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. This isn't some abstract thing, but is a key part of our understanding of the kingdom that is now. As Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So with the gift of the Holy Spirit, those Paul calls citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20 are experiencing right now a foretaste of the fullness of God's presence that is yet to come and a sign of a still future filling, total filling, when Christ returns and the presence of God is all-encompassing. This is all incredible stuff. It's, it's beautiful, it's reality changing, it deserves weeks of sermons uh, on its own. But, for today, even as we are thankful for the evidence of the kingdom in us, even as we look to the future, we've got to hold it in tension with other aspects of the now that we are in. So even though we're experiencing the the wonderful presence and help of the Holy Spirit, we know that He is a foretaste of God's ultimate purposes, an ultimate presence, something far greater that is still coming. So the tension is thankfulness now for the presence, help, and power of the Holy Spirit, but also eager expectation for the ultimate presence and power of God that is coming. And this isn't the only place where there's some tension. Even though we've been given new life, even though we live in the power of the resurrection, and in these things we give thanks, we also still live for a time in mortal flesh. We're still subject to weakness and temptation and decay. And so we give thanks for this gift of new life, even life abundant in the now in Jesus, but we also wait with expectation for the final resolution of those things. We know that we are more than conquerors through Christ, but 
we're still in a battle between the spirit and the flesh. We know that we are citizens of heaven, but we're still on a pilgrimage heading toward our final home. We know that someday God will wipe away every tear, that there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, but we still suffer now. And for reasons that we may not be able to fully understand, we know that the adversary who is judged, defeated, is still doing his thing. Still waging war against those of us who are in Christ. And even though 1 John uh, 3.8 tells us that the Son of God destroyed his works, the adversary's efforts only seem to be intensifying, increasing, as we draw closer to the culmination of God's good purposes. But no matter how fiercely he strives against us, though he is not totally destroyed yet, and though we have to continue fighting him, as Paul teaches us to in Ephesians 6, we know that his outcome is certain. He is a defeated enemy. So as we continue to stand against his efforts for a little while longer, we don't have to worry that someday he might win. Nah, the dude is beat. He's beat. We've won this thing already in Jesus. The same thing is true of death. Those who, have, who are in Christ have been given a gift of eternal life. That's done. That's a sealed deal. Death is no longer final. Uh, to borrow from one of my favorite songs by Johnny Cash, there ain't no grave that can hold our bodies down. But we still have to grapple with the reality of death for a little while longer. The fruit of our rebellion against God's kingly rule is still present for a time. According to Paul, it's, going to be, it's the last enemy that's going to be fully destroyed. And so it still hurts, and it still serves us as a stark reminder of all that's gone wrong with the world. But let's not lose sight of what has changed in Christ. That now in him and he in us, we can face the prospect of death. We can face the hurt with the knowledge that its effects are not final. That even though the ultimate execution and judgment of death is not yet, the judgment itself is already accomplished and already assured. Death itself has been destroyed. So if we take a step back and look at all these things, I mean, look at these areas of tension. The tension of this, this is true now, but this is also not yet. It should be clear that Christ's inaugurated kingdom now, even as he rules over our hearts now, we still live in a fallen world, and our experience of salvation is, in a sense, still incomplete. And so we wait for that completion. 
But as we wait, as we live in the tension of the now and the not yet, we have work to do. Not work in any sense that will help to assure a final victory that's already assured, but work that is expected of us as co-regents, as representatives of God's kingly rule on this earth through Christ. Work that's expected of us as Christ's standard bearers, as citizens of heaven committed to doing our king's work, committed to being a part of his rule. We have work to do. And that work, in no small part, is predicated on living thankful and obedient lives. Lives that are submitted to the rule of Christ in our hearts. All of the fruit of the Spirit that we read of in Galatians 5, all the examples of behavior and discipline and obedience that Christ showed, all the benefits and roles and expectations of the kingdom now that have been given to God's people, now is the time for us to be putting those things into practice. To pursue them with all diligence and all excellence. Recognizing that such things store up reward and value not just in the now, not just in the abundance of life that comes from those things, but also in the not yet. And recognizing that how we live now as citizens of the kingdom should show the world what all of creation will someday look like when God is ruling in all and over all. And sure, this, this can mean for us huge acts of courage and faith, great and impassioned speeches that get written down in the history books, earth-shaking events done by the faithful. It can even mean martyrdom, laying down our lives for the sake of the kingdom, showing the value of living and dying for truth and righteousness and he who is in us. But it can also mean and will more likely mean for us in here the day-to-day. Investing well in our communities, day in and day out, our church, whatever other communities we're a part of. Uh, It can mean paying our bills on time, being good stewards with our resources, keeping our word, being good neighbors, dare I say, loving our neighbors, honoring our bosses, being good stewards of God's creation, daily saying no to lust and wrath and gluttony and every other kind of sin. These kind of lives, day in and day out, Lives of holiness and service and witness and obedience and hope. These are what we are called to as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. These are lives that co-rulers in Christ's kingdom must lead. How seriously are we taking our role? As we close, I have just one more word of caution. 
we've got to remain firmly grounded in the tension. The tension between the kingdom now and the kingdom coming. To lean too far to one side or the other can actually, in many ways, compromise the task that's at hand. In other words, we don't want to become so focused on the kingdom coming, the kingdom that is not yet, that we neglect our roles and our responsibilities in the kingdom now. We don't want to prove true the Marxian belief that our eschatological views distract us from the task of transforming the world we're in for the better. On the other hand, we don't want to be so now focused that we fail to view things through God's eternal lens and lose the hope of the coming kingdom as the days grow darker. Our eyes must be ever up and forward, looking to the coming day of the Lord. May the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit drive us to live well in the balance. Lives of holiness and service and witness and hope as we wait for the day of our final and perfect salvation. Amen. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate him talking about that. It's uh, the, the kingdom of God is not one of those things that is actually talked about a whole lot. In that sense, my, my dad showed up last week with a couple of my nephews because their church had closed due to the weather, and it was basically kind of new information to him as well. Uh, I remember Sean Meyer talking about this, I'm sure, well over a decade ago, and it being like just pretty eye-opening to me thinking about what does that mean? If you were to ask somebody, uh, tell me about the kingdom of God and, and what that means in the New Testament, I would assume most people would think of the Lord's Prayer and tend to definitely think of it in a future sense rather than something that has been inaugurated with uh, Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and then the Holy Spirit coming and the ministry of the apostles in the church. And that just gets kind of lost in translation somewhere. Um, we even talk about salvation history, and I think people that are Christians tend to understand that fairly well, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and what most of that means, but, but the actual kingdom of God and what that means in the here and now and how that ties into sanctification. I, I guess I think maybe it gets overlooked because we tend to, the, the already not yet thing that Josh focused on, we tend to certainly tie that in with sanctification and our own growth and sanctification, which is something we need to focus on. But if you lose sight of the bigger picture that uh, we're part of God's kingdom and Christ came not just to save us, but the church of which we hope to be part of, um, that's a much grander, better picture than just thinking about me. And there's a bigger, there's bigger things at stake here, uh, which is, which is just fascinating. And you think about how often it shows up. It even, I don't know if you noticed it, it showed up in our reading this morning. Okay, reading glasses, dang it. 
uh, in, for, in Colossians 1, remember in 13, it said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, there's this, the word that keeps coming up that I've used in Romans is for the already not yet is this idea of it's being proleptic. Like it's happened and it's true and it's certain, but it isn't fully yet happened. And, and that carries over in, into all these things. Um, Last comment I wanted to make that uh, that struck me last week that's so important. There's multiple times, especially in Romans, where the word but now, uh, Paul uses the phrase but now. And talk about an easy thing to skip over, but it it's again not just referring to salvation history, but that things are actually effectively different now and that we have different things uh, available to us to please the Lord. As it says in Romans 3, right after Paul has delivered the bad news that nobody can be saved by acts of righteousness in uh, Romans 3.21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And so that, that's such a real tangible, and like Josh said, it is not a completely abstract thought. It's a real thing that, that uh, hopefully will uh, motivate you to some further study. So why don't you stand and I will also read uh, a similar passage from Romans 8 and dismiss you from there. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. All right, you may uh, go in peace. You're dismissed.